Romans chapter 8, please. The 18th verse. Romans 8, 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I trust that our time spent in the first assembly on the first three words, with the others only implied, was valuable to you. For I reckon, David, no, it was Moses, Moses wrote in Psalm 90 and verse 12, in the light of the brevity of human existence and that the average life expectancy is 70, and if by reason of strength it's 80, yet those days are still full of labor and sorrow, he wrote two verses later, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. That's the kind of reckoning that we want to take out of the first three words of Romans 8.18. We want to do a comparative analysis on a daily basis as we measure first the positive, enticing, seducing things of this world against the true riches of glory. Now Moses, when he made this choice, he was a famous man in Egypt, mighty in word and deed, 40 years old, Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter's son, the grandson of Pharaoh. He made that choice and he said, the short-term pleasures of sin aren't worth affliction with the people of God. The treasures of Egypt aren't worth the riches of Christ. I will make the choice. I refuse to be called Pharaoh's grandson. And so he refused it. And he chose the affliction of the people of God. And he spent the rest of his life, 40 years at the backside of the desert, and 40 years wandering around with the most stubborn, lazy, carnally-minded church that's ever been described in the pages of Scripture. But he had a recompense, and he had a view of the recompense of the reward, and he saw him that is invisible. He looked at God, and he looked at that eternal reward, and he made that decision. Other men have made that decision. Levi left his table for collecting to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, also known as Matthew. But also we want to look over here and do a reckoning at the suffering. Well, to be a Christian, I'm going to lose friends. To be a Christian, I'm going to have to give up some things. To be a Christian, I've got to deny my flesh. And we want to look at the riches of heaven and realize that is not worthy to be compared. Because the one is so superior to the other, they don't belong on the same spreadsheet. And we want to keep that in mind every day. To reckon, for I reckon, that the sufferings of this present time. Let me very quickly help you go through the rest of this verse that the Lord will bless us. Sufferings of this present time are afflictions of various sorts. The vanity of life under the sun and persecution and other things. Follow with me. Man is afflicted variously. We each have various afflictions, bodily, relational, economic, professional. We have these afflictions that try us while we're here in this life. But they're all common. The only difference is that the circumstances are different. So yours might be a particular kind of affliction. But the Bible says there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape. It's common. 
It's just that the details differ. Yours might be health. Someone else's might be professional. Someone else's might be relational, children, spouse, parents. And they vary in circumstances, but they're common in the seriousness with which they hurt us. Harm us, discourage us, try us. So we want to remember that they're all common, but they affect our bodies, our relationships, and everything we deal in because everything is commonly corrupt. You can't buy anything that isn't going to oxidize. Rust is a statement of fact about our world. And the rest of this chapter gets rid of rust, but not in the world as we presently know it. Nothing works like it should. People disappoint. Machines fail. Ideas don't work. Budgets are always overrun with costs. And so there's always trouble. So there's afflictions of all kinds. Man then finds out that life is vain. He works as hard as he can and he accumulates something and he knows he's going to die and his foolish son is going to get his hands on it and squander it. Solomon worried about that in the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes, you're, you can't spend it. You're so worried about keeping it that you can't enjoy it. And so life is vain and vexing to your spirit. Solomon found out that though he heaped to himself all sorts of things, construction projects, means of pleasure and entertainment, all of it just turned out to be vanity to him, meaning it was empty, nothing, profitless. And it vexed them trying to get it because it took so much work to get it and then to find out that it was vain. We learned that. These, these are the sufferings of the present time. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time. Now the sons of God have a little bit more than that. That's all men. Sickness. Death. Untimely death. Relational problems, financial problems, professional difficulties, political changes in a nation that affect our lives. Then the vanity of life. They realize when they get to the end, you mean that's all there is to life? I got up, I went to work, I came home, I got up, I went to work, I came home, I've been taxed, I've paid out, my shopping overspending wife has burned up everything I earned and there's nothing left. That's the vanity of life. But Christians have more problems, more suffering in this present time. The sons of God have suffering from the chastening hand of God on their lives. Because God doesn't let them get away with loving sin and fulfilling the lusts of their flesh. So when they do that, He brings His chastening hand on them. Can you bring to memory some of David's statements about God's hand being heavy upon him so that it dried up all the moisture in him and he was like a desert? His soul was so lean, he can give you the lust of your heart in quail, but he can send leanness into your soul. That's the chastening hand of God. Hebrews 12 describes it. No chastening for the present is joyous. There's no joy in being chastened. So that's part of our suffering in this world as a child of God. Furthermore, the sons of God have the further suffering of persecution by their enemies who hate God and them. The Bible says all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 
Jesus said, they've hated me before they hated you. And if they've hated me, they're certainly going to hate you. So we have persecution from our enemies after chastening from God. Furthermore, the sons of God have fleshly temptations that we have to reject and deny and worldly pleasure that we have to reject and deny. So we have to live lives of self-denial. And we do it because God commands us to do it. Those appetites and desires, which are called the lusts of our flesh, that are in our body, we have to say no to. The lusts of our eyes, of things that we want, that don't belong to us, and the contentment instead that we're supposed to have, is a choice we make that is painful at times. The pride of life. We scrap it to walk as a little child of the Lord's through life instead of wanting to acquire a position or influence or reputation to be impressive to others. Jesus said, He that followeth me needs to take up his cross daily to follow me. Jesus didn't call it a cross because it's a picnic. It's a cross because you need to crucify or mortify the lust of your flesh to follow Jesus Christ and please him. So a Christian has not only the various afflictions of body, home, family, jobs that the world has, nor it also has more than the vanity of life that all men realize at some point to some degree. It also has, as a child of God, the chastening of God, the persecution from God's enemies, and the fleshly temptations of our lusts that we have to deny. So there's five categories of sufferings of this present time that a Christian has. And so the issue arises. If I choose to be a Christian and Jesus said, count the cost before you become a Christian. Luke 14, 25 through 33. He said, a man that wages a war or a man that's going to build a tower, he sits down first and determines how much it's going to cost so he can finish the tower. He determines whether he's able to take on another king with 20,000 soldiers when he has but 10,000 or he sends an ambassador of peace. He counts the cost. Jesus taught us that. So as we count the cost and we do some reckoning, life is full of pain and suffering. Life is vain, but those things are there anyway. Just as mere men, we have those things. But as a Christian, we have God's chastening, the persecution of God's enemies, and the life of self-denial that he's asked us to live for a few years. And that's the present suffering that we have. But we can endure it. And the point of the 18th verse of Romans 8 is that the glory that's going to be revealed in us is far greater than all that put together. Far greater. So much greater that they're not to be compared to each other. They're not worthy of comparison. To do a comparative analysis and put the the sufferings here in those five categories I just described and to put over here the glory of heaven in duration and in quality. This is far superior. So much so that it just puts this in the shade and it shouldn't even enter into our minds. And men who have this in their vision and by faith see the joy of God's presence and the gladness there and the fellowship there, none of this moves them. They don't care if they were to lose it all. And that's the way we want to be. And Paul was like that. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy 
to be compared. No matter how well we identify and measure our suffering, it's not worthy to be compared to what's coming. No matter how much we suffer or think we suffer presently, it is nothing in comparison to what is coming. The differences between cases of suffering from one person to another are far less than men think. That's because people like to think that they're suffering exceptionally. But the Bible doesn't allow you that luxury. It says there hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. Of course, at times there were men like Job, but his suffering was rather short-lived. And the Lord gave him twice in the end, so he was rich in the beginning, twice as rich in the end, and he had a few weeks off in the middle, where he sat in a campfire and reasoned with his three wonderful friends about his life. The point here in this verse is not whether there is future glory. That's already been stated in verse 17. Because verse 17 says, If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. That's the statement of fact. Verse 18 is not a proof, it's not an evidence that there's eternal glory. It's to compare it to any problems you have in this life, there is no comparison. That's the issue. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the same kind of comparison Paul made in other places. For I reckon that the suffering of this present time is not worthy. Well, the sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verse 16. Paul has described the troubles that he went through. You can see in verse 18, troubles, perplexities persecutions, being cast down, bearing about in his body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 10. He had lots of troubles in his life. But he put it this way in verse 16, For which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Outwardly I go through a lot that really beats me down. But my inward man does not respond the same way because God renews it. That means gives it new strength every day so that I can face the next day. And I can face the next day. And the Lord has taught us to only worry about one day at a time. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Matthew chapter 6. The Lord renews us day by day inwardly so that though our outward man is perishing and we feel no strength in our bodies to go on, He renews our strength inside so that we can go on. Verse 17, 4, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Now when the apostle writes that, he is not being sarcastic like I am about your afflictions. Because your afflictions are truly light. And they're but for a moment. His were serious afflictions. Second Corinthians 11, as it describes his suffering, is a serious list of difficulties he had in his life. So when Paul says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, we should listen to this. He is calling what he endured in life, along with what we endure in life, as a light affliction, and it's only for a moment. Keep those two things in mind. 
The weight or quality of it is light. The duration of it is a moment. The second half of verse 17. Worketh for us. When we do that for the Lord's sake, when we take on that kind of suffering, self-denial, submission to chastening, afflictions in this life, persecution by our enemies, when we take that on for the Lord's sake, it's working something. It's proving and giving evidence that you're a child of God and there's more waiting for you. It worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now, far more and exceeding are all a combination of terms that are telling you that this light affliction is the weight of glory. And the difference in quality between this weight in glory and this light affliction is far more exceeding. It's not 20 pounds versus 18 pounds. It's not 2,000 pounds versus 100 pounds. It's far more exceeding this weight of glory and this light affliction. This is the Word of God. The purpose of God writing His Word to us is to make us stop and think this Lord's Day to realize that what is coming is a weight that is far more exceeding in its quality and power and influence in our lives than this light affliction. That's quality. That's its density. That's its weight. That's its power to impress down our lives. This one's far more exceeding. And it's a weight. This is light. Then, duration. For a moment, we have a light affliction for an eternal exceeding weight of glory. Isn't that a wonderful combination? Now that's the Holy Spirit. Does He know your language? Does the Holy Spirit know English? Did He give us a decent verse? Is it a powerful point? And Paul is the one writing it, so when he says light affliction, it can be a lot of affliction, but he still calls it light, and he calls it for a moment, because a 70-year life, if you were to be suffer, if you were to suffer the entirety of it, is still just a moment compared to eternity. How do you compare 70 years to infinity? How does it calc? You can't calculate it. And this is the verse. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, but revealed to us in Scripture, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Amen. Thank you, Lord. What a comparison. And that is the reckoning that we need to do every day. What is the far more exceeding thing that God has in this particular category that I'm calling suffering? Do you think that sickness is suffering? There is no more sickness in heaven. You will have a body that wakes up in the morning and bounds out of bed with a smile on your face. You will be so excited about the day in front of you, and you will be feeling energy, strength, and vigor and vitality in every cell of your being because there will be no sickness there. There will be no weakness there. Now, when you think of living for eternity with boundless energy and perfect health compared to your problem this week, it's a light affliction and a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 
You say, I'm tired of crying. David cried so much, the Bible says, that he made his bed to swim with tears. That's more crying than you've done in a while. He made his bed to swim with tears. But the Bible says in Revelation 21 and verse 4, My God shall wipe away all tears. So how long can you cry? You want to tell me how long you cried? Your, Your children have hurt your feelings. How long did you cry about it? Five minutes? An hour? You say, I cry once a week. I have a good cry once a week. How long have you been crying? How many years has it been going on? You know, let's just try to quantify this and add it all up till we get it all heaped up here. What you're calling is a light affliction, and what it should, is a light affliction. My God shall wipe away all tears. You'll never be crying in heaven. Forever. Right. Death. There'll be no more death. How's that? You'll never be having to think, I could get cut off before I realize this goal. Never. No one else is going to die around you. Everyone's going to live forever. What about sorrow? What about being sad? I'm tired of being sad. My God shall wipe away all sorrow. It'll all pass away. You'll never be sad again. This is heaven. So why are you worried about a little sorrow now? Rejoice at it. Scoff at it. Jesus despised the shame of the cross. Was he a man of sorrows? He was. Do you know why? Because we made this world an ugly place and he had our sins to pay for. As soon as he got our sins taken care of, he was no man of sorrows. He's a man of joy and he rejoices in his strength and has for every second since his ascension. No more crying. No more pain. How about loneliness? Are you tired of being lonely and people deserting you and hurting your feelings? You'll be with God forever. I will be to you a father, and you shall be to me a daughter. And I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee, forever. When I say it, I mean it. He doesn't have to say that. He swore with an oath that you would believe him. How about fleshly temptations in your body? Your body's going to die and it's going to be glorified again, and it will have no fleshly lust in it. The only craving in your body, this spiritual glorified body in heaven, the only craving you're going to have is to praise God a little louder and a little longer. You say, but I've got eternity. I know you're going to need it. That's what your body's going to want to do, instead of the other things it wants to do, which fight in war against singing His praise. How about poverty? Well, your father's kind of rich. You can't count it. Just count on it. How about time? It's destroyed. You live in eternity now. Well, I always run out of time. Sherry, don't look at me. I never have enough time. There's never enough time. You'll have eternity. For I reckon that the sufferings with time in this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. Enemies. You tired of having enemies that hate you? You're wondering when they're going to pop out of the woodwork and do something else? My God shall destroy all enemies. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Praise His glorious name. Chastening, you'll be perfect. Your father will never have to chasten you again because you'll be a perfect son for eternity. And we could go on and on, heaping up 
the questions and problems you might have, is Christianity worth it? For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. It's not worthy to be compared. Look at Romans chapter 5. Hurry with me now. Romans chapter 5. We have something good to do in just a minute. This is good to me, and I hope it's good to you. Romans chapter 5. Look at the apostle hinted at this way back in chapter 5. And we studied it thoroughly when we were there, but I want to take you back and see if you can't see a little glimpse of Romans 8 and Romans 5. Verse 2. Not only are we justified by faith, as faith is the evidence of our justification in verse 1, faith gets us something else in verse 2. By whom also, that is Jesus Christ, we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. A child of God, fully exercising his faith, believes on Christ for his justification in his conscience, soul, He also trusts that he has access by faith into this grace where we presently stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God in the future. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. We glory in them. We have we have hope of so much glory that's coming through Christ Jesus that we are able to glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, Patience experience and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. What we're rejoicing in about our hope of glory never leaves us ashamed because it certainly will come to pass because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. God testifies to us that He truly, indeed, loves us. We will never be separated from His love and we will obtain that eternal glory. So that we can glory in tribulations because we learn, and we learn when we studied this passage, that tribulations teach us patience. And patience experience and experience hope. We need tribulations to be better Christians, better children of God. It's just like a father making his son cut the grass, wash the car, sweep the sidewalk, deliver newspapers, and do whatever else is necessary when the little guy needs to learn a little bit of responsibility and cheerfully enduring those responsibilities on a daily basis. The Lord brings us those by tribulations. And we glory in them because we know they're short, we know they're light, we know that we've got a hope of eternal glory. With the glory. First, back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory. We understand this glory not as us being shining stars in heaven of our own value and merit, but this glory as being perfect bliss in a wonderful world without any suffering. We're going to be glorified so that there is nothing corruptible about us. We're going to be glorified so that there is nothing lustful about us. We're going to be glorified so there are no problems in us. And we're going to be glorified that way. Jesus suffered with our temptations in this world, and then He was received up into glory. A perfect place where there are no problems, and He was given glory. He was crowned with glory and honor. Any crown that we're going to get is a crown that Jesus Christ secured for us. The crown of life. The crown of eternal life. 
Jesus saw the joy that was set before him in Hebrews 12 too, and he endured the cross because he saw the joy. If we see the joy, we can endure the crosses we carry. Our cross isn't equal to his cross. His cross was far greater. But Hebrews 12 too is he had the right perspective by looking at the joy that was set before him, so he endured the cross, despised the shame. And where is he now? Well, what does the verse end up with? What does it say? Where is he now? He is sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Is that a decent place to be? At his right hand? Where is the favored place of a monarch in the Bible? At his right hand. Where is the Lord Jesus Christ? At his right hand. What does Psalm 16 tell us are at the right hand of God forevermore? Pleasures. Whose right hand do you want to be at? The President of the United States? The Governor of South Carolina? Whose right hand do you want to be at? There are pleasures forevermore. That's the glory that's coming. It led to martyrs. Look at Revelation 2.10. We're not stepping on anybody's toes, I hope. Or stealing any thunder. Just building a base. There's no young person in here that can remember what I'm preaching long enough to remember it tonight anyway. Prove me wrong, everyone. We'll all be happy. I'm just, I'm just challenging you. Remember, that's irony. Revelation 2.10 Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Is that a worthwhile exchange? Many thought so. Do you think so? 12. Chapter 12 of the same book. In verse 11 tells me, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. That's the attitude we ought to have. And brethren, it's the glory that's revealed in us. It's not the glory revealed to us. We are going to be glorified. Our bodies are going to be changed. That is the context of Romans chapter 8. That is the main thrust of the glory which shall be revealed in us. We are not going to be glorious in and of ourselves. Jesus Christ has secured for us a glorious spiritual body that has none of the limitations or the afflictions of our present bodies. He has already obtained His, and it was a shocking contrast to His friend John the Apostle when he met Him in Revelation chapter 118 and fell at His feet as dead. And the Bible says, Beloved, Oh, Give me more. Now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. We haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen Him glorified yet, except in these writings of John in the book of Revelation. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall see Him. We shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We shall be like Him. We will have His glorified body. There in Romans chapter 8, look at what it says in verse 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, 
waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. We are waiting for our body to be changed because God is going to show us glory in this thing that has caused us pain and sufferings in this present time. What costs us now is going to be blessed later. Rejoice in it. The body that is coming will just put this one entirely in the shade. Does a 12-foot corn stalk with one ear of corn on it with 16 rows of 50 kernels per row, which means 800, with a big tassel on the top, 12 feet high, that's short field corn, but if you've got this stalk that has come up out of the ground 12 feet, 14 feet, 16 feet, huge tassel on the top, an ear, 16 rows, 50 kernels per row, you know, you got that for putting one little kernel in the ground. And the Bible tells us that when these things get planted, it's going to be something like that. The bare seed that is planted in the ground doesn't look anything like what comes out of the ground. And we are going to be planted in the ground, and what comes out is beyond us. And so some fool at Corinth said, well, what kind of a body are we going to have? You know what Paul's answer was? An appropriate one. Thou fool. Stop asking stupid questions. When you plant something, I can't even describe for you what's going to come out. There's one glory of the sun, there's a glory of the moon, there's a glory of stars, and there's a glory of you. You're going to be glorious. Rejoice in it. Oh, there's so much that could be said on this. We're, we're done. Look at Philippians chapter 3, and I'll close with a verse from our brother's favorite chapter. The brother sitting in front of you, Matthew. His favorite chapter is Philippians chapter 3. We close with the last verse. Who shall change our vile body? We need to love ourselves, they tell us in the world. You need to love your body. Well, Paul said it's a vile body. Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body? You know, there are girls that worry about fashion. The girls that worry about fashion, do you know what? There's these little faggots that work in Milan, Paris, and New York that come up with fashion trends. And so it's little girls that want to wear stuff that's put together by little faggots. That should make you sick. You know, it should make you want to step outside and vomit. But there's someone else in the fashion business. And he's fashioning. He's going to fashion your body. Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working, whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Your wild, sinful, lustful, weak, dying, decaying body, he is able to subdue to himself and fashion it into a glorious body like his own. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us when we have these glorious bodies. It will entirely put in the shade everything we have been tempted with and everything we have suffered in this life. And because of that, the 20th verse takes on importance for our conversation. That means our lifestyle, our manner of living is in heaven. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is going to do verse 21 for us. And therefore, 
Waiting for it and putting up with a few things now is nothing in comparison. In fact, it's not worthy of the comparison. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.